Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Dr. Christopher Segler. Chris and I had a great conversation around injuries, specifically running injuries, and what the standard of care means when it comes to these injuries and why we need to be more aggressive in treatment of these injuries when dealing with athletes. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this information highly valuable. So let's tune in. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. You are quite welcome. I am super excited to get you on here. I've listened to a number of your episodes. I absolutely love what you talk about. But more importantly, I love what you're doing for runners, which is why I wanted to get you on here um, to share your knowledge with how you work with runners and help them with all of their injury issues. But first off, let's just kind of dive into who are you as an athlete and how did you become the doc on the run? Sure. Well, thanks. Yeah. Again, thanks for having me here. I mean, I'm a big fan of your show and I think it's really interesting, you know, like for you to be able to focus so specifically on a group of athletes that, you know, really does have a unique pursuit. And, uh, and I think that's really important, right? That people can find the information they need that really directly applies to the thing they're doing. And, and your podcast obviously is one that does that. So I, um, well, I've been a runner a, a long time. So when I was a kid, I started running when I was really young. I um, would have my dad get me, you know, get up on a Saturday morning and take me to 10Ks and stuff anytime that I could basically get him to get out of bed and take me to anyone that was within driving distance. And, and I really got into it. And so my first, you know, trophy from a race, I think I was 10 years old. Um, and, uh, and, and then I, I remember as a kid, watching the Ironman triathlon on TV, I just really decided that I wanted to do that. And when I was a kid, I remember going to the lake and um, my grandfather actually followed me in a canoe while I swam across the lake and back. And I was totally obsessed with it. So I had this idea that I would do the Ironman, you know, in Hawaii one day. And, and that was really kind of how it started. And so I, you know, I did lots and lots of running for many years. I ran cross country in high school. Uh, and then I also, um, you know, got into more long distance running, doing marathons, doing Ironman triathlons, all that sort of stuff. And then I had did about 10 years um, up until, I guess, 2015. I was doing Ironman triathlons. I did finally did Hawaii. That was my 15th Ironman race. Um, and I, I'd really do more trail runs now. You know, did a 50 miler last year when I turned 50. Um, and and so I do lots of, you know, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I, but part of it is that when, before I went to medical school and part of the reason I do things the way I, I do now is that I understand just as you do that people with a specific, specific pursuit need to have a specific advice that actually applies to their goals, not just their injury. And uh, the reason that I really feel strongly about this is, you know, is that bef before I went to medical school, I raced motorcycles professionally and I had um, had an injury that was pretty significant and the doctor uh, that was treating me who had done a previous knee surgery on me before for a scope when I had torn my meniscus, then I crashed again and actually tore my ACL, PCL and medial collateral uh, ligaments. And I went to see him and he said, he listened to my whole story and he said, okay, Chris, let me see if I got this right. Your knee only dislocates when you're riding motorcycles. And I said, well, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. Specifically, though, it's really only on heavily left-handed tracks like uh, Monterey, Mexico, Texas World Speedway, and Talladega. It's actually okay on mostly right-handed tracks like Memphis and Road Atlanta and Willow Springs. And and he listened to me and in all seriousness looked at me and said, well, then you just quit riding motorcycles. And and I was like, okay, well, wait, Dr. Harvey, remember like uh, if I finish first, I make a lot of money. If I finish 10th, basically it pays for my gas to the event and back. Um, but if I don't get on a motorcycle, I actually make no money the entire month. So I'm not sure how that's actually a solution for me. And the reason I bring that up and the reason I feel so strongly about it is that you know, when we're, whether you're an adventure course runner, an obstacle course runner, you know, if you're in a Spartan races or whatever it is, marathons, it doesn't matter. That's the thing you enjoy, right? That's what you want to do. And when you get injured, the issue is not that your fourth metatarsal hurts. The issue is that you, you feel like you can't do your event without a risk of making yourself worse. And this is what gets lost on doctors. So you know, I ended up because I, I got interested in when I was racing motorcycles because a friend of mine shattered both of his ankles when he crashed uh, at a race at Road Atlanta. Um, and they did a whole reconstruction on him. I became interested in it and then went to medical school specifically with the intention of doing that. But all of my experience and the way I approach things now is actually guided by that experience I had with Dr. Harvey when he really thought I should just quit riding motorcycles. Um, and and having seen runners who are extremely frustrated because they're told, well, you just cancel that race, you know, that's not a big deal. You just do a different race and, or swim, you know, or ride a bike or, you know, take up some other activity. And that is not the doctor's job. The doctor's job is actually to help you achieve your goals. And that's what doctors lose in their uh, approach because they, you know, they're very busy for the most part. And they wanted to say, oh, well, you have this injury. This is what I do for this injury. Now, that is ridiculous to think that when you're an athlete and you go to a doctor, that the doctor would be so arrogant as to tell you, this is my approach for this injury, which completely removes you as an individual and completely um, disrespects your goals and your particular lifestyle. And so now I basically... I've written a couple of books. I um, have done a lot of research. I won a bunch of awards and stuff. And because of that, I get invited as an expert to go speak to physicians at medical conferences. And I go many times a year to different conferences and I lecture on, you know, stress fractures, uh, tendon injuries in athletes, um, why the standard of care fails injured runners, those kind of things, specifically to doctors to try to teach them that you know, the standard approaches for athletes is the wrong thing to do and argue in large part at those conferences that when doctors do that, it's not really malpractice, but it's definitely a violation of the Hippocratic Oath in terms of, you know, if you take an athlete and you put them in a fracture walking boot for 12 weeks and it heals their Achilles tendon, but they can't run anymore because they were in a fracture walking boot for 12 weeks, you have done them a disservice. And so that's my primary message when I lecture at medical conferences is that doctors need to really consult with athletes and figure out what the athlete's goal is first and foremost, and then figure out what the plan should be. Not say, well, you tore your Achilles tendon. This is the plan for an Achilles tendon. We should say, oh, okay, you tore your Achilles, but you qualified for the Boston Marathon and you want to run that you know, next April. How do we make sure that you can show up on the starting line and complete the event without re-injury? that's the actual task. And so that's really my approach, but it really comes from 
what seemed like a, a ridiculous idea from a doctor many, many years ago, but it is definitely the pervasive idea in medicine. But just because it's pervasive doesn't mean that it's right. And, you know, when I see runners today and they ask me about the standard of care, I just say, well, what do you think? I mean, standard of care, does that seem like a good idea? I mean, it sounds like a good idea when you first hear, but then you think, you know, do you want a standard income? Do you want your kids to have a standard education? Do you want your kids to have a, a standard diet by American standards? I mean, I don't want that for my kids. And so you shouldn't, as an athlete, want the standard of care for you when it comes to your health and your well-being. And that's really the long and the short of it. It comes a combination of my personal experience, you know, as an athlete, but also seeing the other side of it, being a physician where I realized after many years of doing research and believing in evidence-based medicine and all this stuff that regardless of the evidence, any standardized routine has to not be best for an athlete just by definition. I'm really glad you went that direction already because it is something that comes up frequently when talking with people as far as like you get the very knife, knife happy surgeons who are like, regardless of what's going on, you need surgery or the ones who just, well, if that hurts and stop doing it. And neither of those answers is a good answer when it comes to athletes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, particularly with surgery, right? Like, and it's also interesting because I see so many people and I guess it seems like a uniquely American thing where we think, okay, you have an injury. That means something's broken. Can you fix it? That means surgery. Can you just take out the broken part and put in a better one? You know, can you just sew it up? Can you cut it out? Can you do something that will fix it? And then I can go about my, my happy life. But what most people don't understand when they're going into surgery is how long it's going to take to recover from the surgery itself. And the truth is with many athletes and many athletic injuries, the recovery from surgery can be more complicated and more difficult than recovering without surgery. If you're really diligent about doing the right things, that typically means more attentive physical therapy, more direction from somebody that actually knows what they're doing in physical therapy specific to that injury and those associated athletic goals. At least that's what I believe. Well, and that's even assuming the surgery actually works because it doesn't always work either. Exactly. And that also is one of those things where we think that, well, if you have surgery, then you're going to be better. However, everybody going into surgery should certainly read that consent form very carefully and actually consider with each one of those things, well, what happens if, if I actually get an infection? What happens if my stitches actually come apart? What happens if I die from anesthesia? And it sounds dramatic, but it does happen. I mean, I know two people, two friends of mine, that that actually did happen to them. And, you know, I've done lots of surgery. I invented a surgical instrument. I think it's fun to do surgery. But if anything else will work and you're an athlete, you're probably, as a base idea, better off with the other approach, you know. And there are times, sure, if you break your ankle and the bones are not even in the same neighborhood anymore, you have to put them back. And that means surgery. But but that's not all the time. But of course, if you go see a surgeon, most of the time they're going to tell you you need surgery. Just like if you take your car to the dealership and you have a significant problem, they're going to try to talk you into buying a new car because that's what they, they sell. And surgeons sell surgery. Simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. 100% true. So let's dive into injuries a little bit. Why do so many runners end up injured? That's a good question. So, you know, it's, if you read all of these statistics, there's a lot of different statistics that are out there. And I've done a lot of research into trying to figure out what are the real numbers? Because you hear this thing like 85% of all run injured or all runners get an injury uh, during any given year. 
which seems hard to believe. Like if you think about your group of people that you train with, have 85% of them been injured in 2019? You know, I kind of doubt it, right? But it, I guess it depends on what you define an injury. I mean, if you're a, a, an athlete and you're really training at your limit, you're always on the verge of getting injured because you're doing tissue damage to stimulate healing that makes you stronger so that you can train more in the next workout, right? But if you do a little too much, then technically you get an injury. But that could be something as far as like a, you know, a really mild muscle strain or a really mild ankle sprain and technically it's an injury, um, but it resolves very quickly. So maybe it includes those too, but I looked up a lot of stuff and it basically came up with just under 80%. I think it was 79.6% came from a very large study in a British medical journal many years ago as what's really, you know, probably true of, of injuries, but they're not injuries that get uh, treated by a physician or a physical therapist or anyone like that. They're injuries that mostly resolve on their own. But I think that there are two reasons primarily that people get injured. The first one is that they um, ignore the training plan. Like that's, I think, number one. And, you know, everybody gets a plan, but then they do something stupid. And, uh, and I've done this myself. And there's a good example was a guy who it was, it's kind of funny, but this guy, he was training for a marathon. He was a smart guy and he was very busy and he got a training plan and his training plan basically had a total mileage that week of 40 miles. Well, it was not 40 miles of 20 miles each day. Right. But what he did was he was very busy. He suddenly had to take a business trip to New York from San Francisco. So he was gone for three days. He had a plan to go climb half dome in Yosemite at the end of the week with one of his buddies. So he got back from New York after being exhausted from a business trip, went to Yosemite, did the eight-mile hike to Half Dome, the 2,500-mile climb up the northwest face for two days, hiked off the back, and then he ran 20 miles on Saturday and 20 miles on Sunday. And shocker, he got an injury. <laughs> uh, and actually, I remember sitting there looking at him, and I was like, you know, Owen, you seemed like a really smart guy, but you have to be one of the dumbest people I ever met. I cannot believe you actually did that. And fortunately, I mean, he had a really good sense of humor, and he was laughing. He said, yeah, I know, it seems a little crazy now, but that's exactly what we do. I've done it myself many times. I ran 16 miles in Newtons one time on a fairly hilly course when I had not run in them in months, but I did multiple things wrong that led up to that problem, you know, and it's the same as like rock climbing. I used to, I used to rock climb a lot and nobody gets killed in rock climbing from one mistake. You get killed in climbing because you make several mistakes in a row and that, that sort of collection of mistakes allows you to hit the ground or hit a ledge or something and, and you get killed it almost never is at one single mistake. You know, it's not as dramatic as in the, in the movies. You know, your rope doesn't usually break. It's usually you do several things wrong and you get hurt. And, um, and it's like that with running, I think. And so with running injuries, you know, I, um, I, I knew I should get used to my Newtons because I was going to do Ironman Florida and I intended to wear them in that event. I hadn't used them in months and I thought, well, I'm going to run this weekend but I'm not going to run that long. But then a friend of mine, Katie said, well, Hey, let's run together on Sunday. And, and I thought, okay, well, she talks a lot. So we won't run that fast. So it'd be okay if I run with Katie and then Katie wanted to run 16 miles, which I thought, well, what's the difference? We'll be talking. We're going to run slow, but then she wanted to run a hilly course. So I like, I committed to like these little micro decisions that independently wouldn't have been a big deal, 
like run with Katie, no big deal. Run slow with Katie long, no big deal. Run in Newton slow, no big deal. But run slow 16 miles on a hilly course when I hadn't run in them in months, huge mistake. And I got a massive bruise on the side of my foot the next day where I had horrible perineal tendonitis. And this was four weeks before Ironman Florida. That's a bad time to get a significant injury. And, and of course, I woke up and I thought, wow, that was really, really stupid, you know, and I knew better. So I obviously know better. I mean, that's what I treat. And yet I did it. And everybody does it. I mean, I ended up, I got pneumonia right before Ironman Hawaii because I ignored a bunch of things. I was getting sick. My mileage was down. I thought I needed to cram in a bunch of workouts, just like everybody else who gets injured. And then I went and ran 10 miles in the rain when I was sick and I got pneumonia. And uh, that seems really stupid when you say it out loud, but everybody who's an athlete will make a series of mistakes and, and it's all with the best intentions. You think I've got to make up for a, a workout that I missed. You know, I didn't do my speed work because my boss told me to stay late. I, um, one of my kids was sick over the weekend. So now I need to do my long run on Monday, even though I'm going to do my speed work on Tuesday. And you end up like thinking, I just don't want to miss the workout, but you end up stacking workouts together and you wind up injured. I think that's really the primary reason that people get injured. You know, the second reason is that they just push themselves too hard. Um, so, you know, you do your uh, speed work, just uh, like an extra mile repeat, just because you feel good, or you're doing your long run of 15 miles, but it's sunny, it's beautiful, it feels like a good day, and you feel strong, and you decide to do 18. But again, that's really a mistake. You know, it's like it's pushing yourself and, and ignoring that initial sign that something's going wrong. Um, but those are really the two things and they're both amount to mistakes. One of them is just, you know, really not listening to your body. And then the other one is just really ignoring your actual plan. So if you have a, a solid plan, that's good. You know, you wouldn't do it with nutrition, but we do it with workouts. Like you wouldn't say, okay, I need to eat, you know, these meals every day and you wouldn't skip breakfast and lunch and then eat breakfast, lunch and dinner at six o'clock at night. But we try to do that same thing with our workouts. And when we do, we have a mistake. I mean, if you did that at dinner, you'd be throwing up at the, in the evening and you'd have to pay for it. But we think we can get away with it athletically. And unfortunately, you know, whether it's, um, you know, obstacle course racing, uh, you know, marathons, triathlons, whatever, there's definitely this idea of it, you're supposed to suffer and you're going to have to suffer if you want to be successful. And there is some truth to that, but we push ourselves right into trouble with that mentality. And I think it's a, it's a difficult thing to decipher too. I actually just did a post recently kind of about that. Like, what do you actually listen to? Because you have your training plan, you have what your body's actually feeling, you have what your mind's telling you you want to do. And there's this, all this information going on in our head and it can be really tough to really know you know, am I feeling pain or is it just soreness and am I overtrained or am I just like mentally out of it? And I think it's hard to know sometimes. It's, it's very hard to know, but it's also harder to know when you're kind of in that intermediate zone, right? Like if you're a new runner, well, you're going to hurt all over and all of the pain and discomfort is going to be so new that, you know, it doesn't really matter. And you're also not so fit that you can run yourself into trouble. People who've been doing races for a very long time, like decades, well, they know for sure you could skip a long run. If you're doing marathons, you don't have to run more than 18 miles. But when you're a new runner, you have to because you're afraid that if you don't do 20, you know, 20, 25 miles before your marathon, 
you won't actually believe you can run 26. But, you know, I, I, it's been many years since I've run more than 18 miles unless it was an event. Because I don't need to do that. It's just too much tissue damage. And I understand that. I understand like the payoff when you run, you know, 18 to 25 miles. The only payoff you're getting is more swelling and tissue damage. You're not actually going to rebuild that. You're not, you know, you, don't, you can run for three hours, four hours. You don't need to do that to train your glycogen stores how to refill, you know. It doesn't make sense. But there's this intermediate zone where you're actually pretty strong but you're inexperienced in terms of making those decisions. And so in that phase, I think that we still have this, you know, sort of much bigger goals that we're pushing for. We're not sure what we're capable of physiologically. And then it's really this voice, this fear that tells us you can't miss that workout. If you miss it, you have to do it another day. You have to make it up or you will fail. And it's really the sort of like dark side of athletes, this whole, you know, fear of, um, of not being prepared. And I think most athletes are not afraid of failing, but they're definitely afraid of failing because of inadequate preparation. But you don't know how to make that decision. That's why I think, you know, having a coach or a running buddy who really knows what they're doing can be so helpful because you have to get that advice from somebody who understands. In fact, Mark Allen, he told me years ago, I, I used to do this thing where every year I would sign up for the Houston Marathon thinking that if in the quote unquote off season, if I basically got my running fitness like tip top shape and in January or February ran a marathon and started off the year basically with marathon fitness and then stacked all of my cycling and swimming fitness on top of that, I would be really prepared to, you know, go fast and qualify for Kona. And he just like, he listened to my plan at this thing where I was meeting with him and he just said, you know, if you ever want to get to Kona, you're probably gonna have to stop doing that marathon in the beginning of the year. Cause he said, you probably actually never recover from that tissue damage the entire year. And I mean, I think I know what I'm talking about, but because it was me and I think I should get away with it, it never really occurred to me that I was carrying that tissue damage throughout the entire year while I was doing, you know, anywhere from two to four Ironman races a year. And, um, but that's again, one of those things where somebody like Mark Allen, you know, who has decades of coaching experience can look at that and go, well, wake up dummy. This is not a good idea, you know? Uh, and, and me, I'm just thinking, oh, this is the way to get strong and fit. And I'm going to suffer in the winter while everybody else is getting fat during Christmas and New Year's. And um, that's a terrible plan. And so, you know, you have to have somebody that can, can sort of view your bad decisions before you commit them to the, to the pavement. Yeah, so easy, or it's so much better to have an outsider advise us because we'll always do dumb things. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's true in all areas of life, right? I mean, you know, it doesn't, it, you know, we think we make good decisions all the time, but then when a, your nutritionist actually asks you to write down every single thing you put in your mouth for the last month, it's pretty humiliating when you're like, oh, well, you know, I did stop and get gas and bought a bag of potato chips. I did, you know, eat M&Ms for breakfast that day with my coffee, but, you know, the kids left them out, um, you know, and it, it but it, when you have to be accountable and you have to report to somebody on what you're doing, it certainly starts to modify your behavior pretty quickly on the grossly, you know, um, erroneous thing. But, but then you start to get pretty quick, you know, pretty good at um, letting people tell you when something is a bad idea. And obviously Mark Allen knows a lot better about how to go fast at Ironman Hawaii than I ever will. And so if he says you should probably do that, well then I'm definitely going to do it. 
Um, but you know, it's, it wasn't something that was readily apparent to me. And even though I had done many Ironman races by that time, it still was, you know, I wasn't making good decisions, but that's why we, you know, get financial advisors, coaches, you know, therapists, everything, because you have people who are experts and that is their job actually is to know more than you, which is why you pay them. Absolutely. So as a runner, we get injured. I know it's going to be hard to kind of answer this question because there's so many different injuries that can happen, but as a general, like what should be that next step um, as far as physician or rehab or like where, where does someone turn first? That's a good question. So, so my position on this, I think is, um, is pretty clear. It's become more and more clear over the years. In fact, um, about a year ago, I was at a conference and there's a guy, his name is Brian Markinson and he's probably the world's foremost authority on specifically um, dermatologic disorders of the foot. And so it's a very, very narrow area of focus, but this guy's been lecturing for like 40 years and I was having dinner with him and in his lectures, since he's a, basically a dermatologist, he says pretty much, if anything looks weird, you should do a biopsy. If somebody dies of skin cancer and you didn't biopsy it, they're going to sue you and you're going to lose and you will have killed somebody. So you have to biopsy it. And so he's very uptight about biopsies, but I have the opposite approach is that most doctors, because in America, every doctor is afraid of getting sued. We don't want to do something that might allow you to get injured. Right. And it's almost like making it illegal to cross the street without looking both ways. So doctors say, well, you're injured. We're going to tell you cancel that race. Six weeks, no activity, you know, no pushing, pulling, no picking up anything that weighs more than a gallon of milk, no running, no, nothing. You need to rest. You need to recover. You need to take care of yourself. You need to take it easy. All of these things that are sort of like that athletes kind of recoil from those things as if they're frightened, you know, like no activity. Are you kidding? Rest all the time. Watch movies. I can't do that. I'll go crazy and my, my spouse will hate me. Um, and so, but we as physicians think, well, if we don't allow you to do anything stupid, then you won't screw up the recovery process and you won't sue me. And so, what I actually think is that most athletes get treated way too long, but they also get treated way too long because they do this sort of what I call the half-ass approach. You know, they, they say, okay, so I'm not going to, I'm going to cancel this one half marathon I have, but I'm still going to kind of run. I'm just going to run slow and I'm going to kind of limp and I'm not really going to do it right, but it'll be better than really training full force. So what do you do? You're beating up the tissue enough to really severely delay the healing. And then when it comes time for your actual marathon, well, you're not even really ready then. And so it takes way longer. And there's also this, I think, fear among doctors of like telling you, you know what, you have to sleep in the fracture walking boot. You have to use crutches for this period of time because it's poor customer service. And we think we're going to get a bad review on Yelp or something like that. But instead, I think it's much more important for athletes when they get injured and it feels like an injury, which most athletes know, this is not the same thing as being sore because you ran too hard, right? This is a different thing. It's focal. It hurts in one spot. It hurts when you move it. It hurts differently than standard soreness. And so my approach with that is that I think athletes need to be treated very, very aggressively initially. For example, the, iron, the, the bruise thing I had where I had the perineal tendonitis, well, I knew what it was. So I, I wore a fracture walking boot for two days, slept in it, everything, didn't, didn't do anything you know, for two days. I did not half do it for a month and then go do Ironman Florida, but I did it very, very aggressive immobilization around the clock 
for 24 hours. And then I took it off and it didn't really hurt. So I went for a short bike ride. I didn't go for a run. I went for a bike ride. And then I waited. It didn't hurt the next day. So I went for a longer bike ride. And I was very, very careful to not do anything to re-injure it. And then four weeks after that happened, when I went to Ironman Florida, that was my fastest Ironman race my whole life. And according to like standard treatment protocols and most doctors, I should have still been wearing a fracture walking boot. But instead of, you know, kind of just seeing how it feels for the first week or two, I actually just like locked it up in a boot to let it actually start to heal. And I think with most athletes, because they're physiologically prone to healing faster than the normal, average, sedentary, non-active American, that if you actually get help immediately and you get strict immobilization or you get work with a physical therapist, somebody that can actually get the healing process actually started, like get the lymphatic strain, push out all of that inflammatory fluid and actually promote a healing process at the very beginning, it has an exponential payoff. And so, you know, what most runners do, I think, is really simple. They get injured and they just, they tone down their activity. And then they think, if it's not better in a week, or if it still hurts when I run 10 miles in a week, then I'll seek treatment. I'll go see a doctor. Well, then you go make an appointment. It's another week. And then you wait to get to see the physical therapist. It's another week, you know, and then now you're talking three weeks already when you would have been better off just going straight to the source, you know, just to see somebody who's an expert immediately, if you really think you have a real injury, and then take it very, very seriously. So like, you know, if you ask the, the doctor, what, what can I do right now, that's going to really make it heal the most, the doctor will probably say something like, well, you know, if you use a boot and don't walk on it at all, that will help. But I know you're not going to do that. But you don't know that that's true. Because athletes, if they know that that will really speed the process, will do that. And so I think for that's really the key is that, you know, and what I was telling this guy, Markinson, the reason I brought him up is that, you know, it's, it's interesting because his approach is like he really is trying to convince doctors all across the United States and all around the world that they have to be really paranoid about skin biopsies because it's really necessary. And I basically, and we were having dinner, he said, so basically what you're telling all of us is when it comes to athletes, you can relax a little bit and actually let them move things and run a lot earlier if you're aggressive earlier. And I said, that's exactly what it is, is that it's not just let people run when their foot's broken, but treat it very aggressively initially so you can compact the healing process and then get them back to running a lot earlier. That's really what it is. And, but you know, that's not what most doctors do. So I think you have to know that your goals are different than everybody else. And, you know, a simple thing, like if you tell a runner or an athlete or whoever that they, you know, to get an idea of what treatment they're going to get, tell them look around the waiting room when they go to the doctor's office, you know, and if there's like an 80 year old woman on a walker over there and a guy that weighs, you know, 400 pounds over there with a oxygen tank and that all three of you have stress fractures and the doctor says, this is what I do for stress fractures. That is completely ridiculous. And you have to realize that. So you have to ask specific questions with your, you know, physical therapist, doctor, whoever about, well, if I want to do this race on this day, what would I have to do now to make it possible to do that? And, you know, and doctors will stop, right? I mean, I'm sure you get these questions in your practice. And when uh, somebody asks you that sort of stuff, you have to stop and you have to kind of think about it for a second. But there's usually an answer you can come up with that is different, and unique for them, right? But I don't know. That's I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's kind of what I think. No, I I think it does. Going a little bit more in depth, I know that for the most part, I think we're both on the same page as far as 
get people out of boots as much, as soon as possible, get them walking and running as soon as possible. What injuries or like, what are the circumstances where someone does need to be in a boot for a longer period of time or maybe non-weight bearing for a longer period of time? That's a good question. So those are the, so basically the way I think about it is you can do anything you want, but you have to be willing to pay the consequences, but you should think about the consequences, right? So if you have plantar fasciitis and you run on it and you know, you're going to run on it for a few weeks and do a race, what's the risk? Well, there's like almost no risk other than it's going to bug you. If you have a, an early stress fracture, you know, a stress response, you know, a stress reaction even, and you run on it, well, what's the risk? Well, there's almost no risk. Even if you go run a marathon, you're probably not going to break it. But if you run on it for four months, you're probably going to eventually break it if you don't change something in how that thing hits the ground. So those things are low consequence. Even with a stress fracture, if you run on it and break it and move it out of position, we can still put it back and fix it and you can still run on it later. So it doesn't really matter. To me, that's really low consequence, right? But if you had the exact same scenario, but it was a sesamoid stress fracture, this is a different story because you, the only solution really when you really break the sesamoid and it's bad is that you have to take it out. You know, that's not good. You do not want to take out a sesamoid because now you have two of them and you stand on them. You take out one, you've doubled the pressure on the other, and it's definitely going to wear out. You're probably going to get a bunion or hallux varus or something else if you take out one of them. So you're going to wind up with permanent trouble. With your Achilles, same thing. If you have Achilles tendinosis, you know, yeah, you can run on it, but if you keep doing that, eventually you're going to rupture it. And if you rupture it, you're not going to be the same. I don't care what anybody tells you about all these different kinds of repairs and how they stitch it up or whatever. Guaranteed, you are going to be different, permanently different. You know, so if you can, you know, if you run your car and you blow it up and then it only runs on three cylinders instead of four, it is never going to go as fast. And that's the analogy of what happens with your Achilles when you rupture it. It's never going to be as strong. You're never going to be as strong and you are never going to feel as fast again. And that is an issue. So, you know, Achilles tendon injuries, I think, have to be taken very seriously based on the stage that they're in. Sesamoid injuries, same thing. You're asking for trouble if you mess with a sesamoid injury. So, you know, if I had a sesamoid injury, I definitely would not run on it, for sure. I would, I would take the pressure off of it. I would treat it aggressively in terms of removing the pressure and stuff like that. But I think you have to really treat that aggressively. Same thing with, with true posterior tibial tendon dysfunction. Not just tendonitis because you were dumb enough to run 20 miles back to back in Yosemite after you climbed half dome, but you know, true dysfunction of the tendon where it's developing into tendinosis, it's starting to become more lax and it, it's at risk of stretching out and failing. That you have to take seriously because again, you can't really fix that. We can do surgery to change something, you know, to reposition the tendon, add tension to it, tighten the tendon up or whatever but you're never going to be the same. And so I really think those are the big things is truly like sesamoid injuries, uh, posterior tibial tendonitis and Achilles tendonitis are the ones that make me the most nervous because there is no good fix if you really screw it up and pretty much everything else, there's some fix, even if it's a fusion or a plate or screws or whatever, you could fix it and still do most of your activity later without any big deal. Awesome. Thank you for that information there. When athletes get injured, especially traumatic injuries, fear of injury or fear of re-injury with return to sport is a very legit fear. What sort of things should runners be looking out for? Well, two, I guess two directions I want to go with this. First off, when do we know we're ready to return to running? And two, 
what should we be looking for when we return to um, kind of assess ourselves to make sure we're not going to re-injure that? That's a good question. Well, the first thing is like, in, when you say traumatic injury, do you mean like actual trauma or like an overtraining injury? Because I actually think trauma is easier. Like if you get hit by a car when you're riding your bike, even though it's terrible, it's kind of better because it's 100% not your fault, right? You didn't make a mistake, but when you, when you run to the point that you get tendinosis and then you get an Achilles tendon rupture because you were so stupid, you ignored it for a year and a half, even though it hurt and it was swelling and everything else, then I think you have this justifiable base level fear that you're too stupid to recognize the signs when they start to happen. Whereas, you know, true trauma isn't a thing. So I'm not sure if you actually mean like a, a truly traumatic thing or if, you know, you like you roll your ankle or something or, or like, you know, an overtraining thing. Yeah. Thanks for, um, asking for that clarification. Yeah. I'm thinking more of the rolling an ankle or just the overuse, um, type injuries. Yeah. Well, so I think for that, basically, you have to realize, you know, because what we do as physicians, right, at least in train in the United States, we are not taught to look for the underlying cause. We're taught how to fix that problem. You know, oh, you got a second metatarsal stress fracture. That means your second metatarsal, if you look at it on this x-ray, it's like, you know, it should be two millimeters on the met protrusion distance, but yours is actually three. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a wild osteotomy. We're going to cut it. We're going to shorten it, put a little pin in it. Then your foot's going to be better. Well, that's crazy right? And if you don't do that, then your foot's going to hit the same, but that's, you know, one fix. It doesn't make any sense. So instead of doing that, you have to really try to evaluate what you as an athlete did to cause the injury. And if you realize that you're basically prone to making mistakes like everyone else, I've made lots of mistakes. You know, I've gotten injured a number of times because I've done things that were foolish. And if you can just recognize that and then realize that you don't actually have to make that same mistake again, then you can remove a lot of that fear. But everyone has fear and trepidation when they're returning to, to um, activity because you're already like, you know, kind of, you, you're already down. You've already been beaten in a sense. And you're weak. You feel terrible. You feel out of shape. So everything is wrong. And so that you're more prone to fear at that time anyway, just because of everything you've been through. Because almost everybody, of course, gives up some particular goal. They skip some race or something through that process, which is completely demoralizing. You know, your friends are posting on Instagram about how great it was and you're sitting at home on a couch. And all that stuff really does add up. So you have three things primarily that you can watch for, though. So the, the first thing, the worst thing is bruising. So if you've had an injury and you're returning and you get bruising, that's the worst thing. Obviously, you tore something, cracked something, broke something, whatever. You had bleeding inside your foot, your ankle, and then you got bruising. So bruising is the worst thing. That's a sign that you did. This is like the idiot lights on the car. You know, hey, you know, moron, your car's out of oil. Why don't you pull over and put some oil in there instead of, you know, checking the oil once in a while? So that one's kind of like not for most people who are returning to, from an injury. Um, the second, though, is swelling. Swelling is a lot more subtle, but if you know what to look for, you can see it. And like when I do a, a phone consultation with somebody, I always have them put their feet on the floor and pull their toes up off the ground so that it, it makes the extender tendons more prominent on the top of the foot. And then by looking at it, and I will ask them, do you have any swelling? And almost all the time they say no. And then I'll say, okay, would well, you notice that you can see all of your extensor tendons on your left foot, but on your right foot, you only see the first and the fifth. And in the middle of your foot, you cannot see 
the second, third, or fourth extensor tendon, that means you have swelling because you have something in there that's making the tissue distended and hiding the extensor tendons. And then if you look at the veins on the foot, do you notice that like the dorsal venous arch that you see right here on this foot is completely absent on the other foot? So what, do you think you don't have one or is it hidden by the swelling? But if you understand how to look for the swelling, you can use that, you know, and it may look normal in the morning, but in the afternoon or evening after you've been at work or after you've done a workout or something, then you notice the swelling. But that is usually something that precedes the pain. Now, pain also is the most reliable and fastest indicator, but it's also when something's really wrong. And I think most people get swelling with at least the most common conditions like, you know, stress fractures and tendonitis and stuff like that. You actually, particularly when you're returning from a, a, an injury, you're already prone to an inflammatory process because all the remodeling that's happening in the tissue, you know, uses a process of inflammation to get materials in and out of that area as the tissue repair happens. And so if you know that you can look for that and somebody can show you how to look for the swelling at least, and you're really checking it regularly to see, do I have pain? You're really thinking about it. Do I have pain or not? Then it's pretty easy to be tuned into that and then not make the mistake. Because if you do a workout that evening, you don't have pain. You don't have swelling. The next morning, you don't have pain or swelling. You can assume that whatever you did was safe. And then you should inch up a little bit from there. The other thing that I think is really important for athletes to understand is to, to realize and accept that you are going to make a mistake through that process of returning because you only have two options. One option is to not do anything until it looks like it's totally healed, like, you know, months or years later, and then start training again, which is not realistic for most athletes, or accept the fact that the tissue is going to be healing and then you're going to do a little too much and you're going to have a little pain or a little swelling or something but that doesn't mean you undid 100% of the repair that has happened during that process. And I think that's what people are really afraid of because mm -hmm. I have people literally that will call me crying saying, Oh, I went for a run today. My foot hurts, you know? And I'm like, don't panic. You know, don't, it's not a big deal. I bet it will be gone tomorrow. The pain will be gone. This is like a setback of a day, not a week, you know? Um, but you have to realize that that also is true that when the tissue is repairing and you overdo it a little bit, it doesn't really undo all of the good that you have done through that process. And if you realize that, then I think it diminishes a lot of the fear. I think that's a great point to bring up because so many people do, you know, panic when they do have that pain. And, and my response to them most of the time is like, cool, we found your limit, <laughs> you know, now well, exactly. We, but that's now we know the at. only way to find it. So this is the only way. So, uh, I also learned this from a guy named Fred Provis, who was my mentor when I was racing motorcycles. And basically, um, I, I won a championship my first year and I was going to be racing as an expert, you know, making money the next year. And we went and rented this racetrack in the middle of central Texas, where we actually paid to have the track to ourselves the entire day. And Fred says, all right. He said, and he was explaining to me, he said, look, if you really want to, if you really want to race uh, at an expert level, and be competitive, you have to be able to slide the front and rear end of the motorcycle at the same rate and controllably all the time, or you will not be able to even place. And so I said, okay. He said, well, you're going to learn how to do that this weekend. And I said, all right, well, how are you going to do that? And he said, well, you're going to learn how far is too far. You're going to have to push the front end through the corners until you figure out how far is too far. And I was like, well, how do we do that? He said, well, we're going to take all the plastic off the motorcycle. We're going to loosen all the brake levers so that they spin and hopefully don't break every time you crash. 
and you're going to crash over and over and over at all different speeds through every corner on the track until you figure it out. And so I did. So, you know, everywhere from, you know, 15 miles an hour to almost a hundred miles an hour, you know, on these corners, I basically go through and just slide the motorcycle trying to control the slide. And then when the front end would go too far, I would crash. And then I would do it again and again. And when you're running, it's the same thing. You're basically going to, you know, push a little too far. Hopefully you don't break anything, you know, and if you, but you also have to be aware of it, right? It is a very subtle thing. And just like sliding a motorcycle, there is a, a part that feels really good and it is very, very close to too far. And so in training, that's really your coach's job. If you think about it, your coach's job is to give you a training plan that allows you to train as hard as possible without getting injured. But when you do even a little bit too much, that's when the crash happens. And, and that is it. You have to find the limit. So that's exactly the right thing to tell people. It's like, wow, this is terrible. I got injured. No, this, this is where you are right now. This whole thing is changing. It's improving every day. Now you just had a setback of a few days, but you know that that's your limit right now. That's not going to be your limit three weeks from now. It's just your limit today, you know, or yesterday. And so it is a useful thing. This is like a seriously useful data point, right? You know, and, but again, it's like, that's where you understanding that as a, as somebody who knows how to treat people, who to take care of athletes, you can give them that guidance, whereas they really don't know, you know, just like, you know, um, I trusted Fred and we would go to racetracks and I, you know, remember one day at Memphis, he, first time I was there, he just said, oh, he watched me doing a bunch of stuff in open practice and I came back and he said, you know, when you go through turn four, he said, basically, you know, he said, what gear are you in? I was like, I don't know, fourth gear. You know, and he said, no, 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 you need to be in fifth gear. I was like, there's no way. I'll slide all the way across the corner and off the track. And he said, like, I'm telling you, just try it. So I did not believe that was possible. And he said, what will happen is you'll, you'll hit the apex and just hold the gas wide open in fifth gear. And you will slide all the way down the straightaway to the very edge of the track, but the tires will catch just before you run out of track. And I thought, okay, this is nuts, but whatever. He knows what I, better than me. And sure enough, Fred was right. And I actually um, uh, won a race that weekend. And it was because I trusted Fred, right? But you have to understand that, you know, all these people, your coach, your, your running buddies, your therapists, you know, everybody understands where that point is better than you do. You know, so that's the big key is that you're an expert in injuries of athletes. Nobody who comes to you is an expert. Yeah, Absolutely. Chris, I want to respect your time. I know you have a lot going on today. Any final thoughts that we haven't talked about that you feel are really important to mention? No, I just think that, you know, it's really important to find specialized caregivers, first and foremost. So, um, you know, you have to know who it is that can help you. So if you, if you want to, you know, win a Spartan race, Mark Allen's probably not the guy to help you with that. However, if you want to go to Ironman Hawaii, he can definitely help you with that. And I think that's true in injuries too. You know, you have to know who it is that can really help you. And it's obviously your podcast really helps people understand all these little nuances in injury. But in every town, in every state, in every part of the world, there is somebody close by who can help. But it's going to be somebody who understands not just your injury, but your specific goals. That is really the big key. People always want to know who is the best at knees. And I mean, I literally had a guy in New York email me said, I want to know who is the best at planter plate repairs in the United States. What are the top three people? I was like, man, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Like, 
You know, it doesn't, it's so stupid, the whole idea. But that's what we believe is that someone is the best at Achilles injury. Somebody, well, it depends. Do you want the thing to look perfect on an x-ray or do you want to be able to win a race on it? And if you want to be able to win a race on it, you need to find a therapist, a doctor, whoever it is in your area that understands that event, not just that injury. That's really the key. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. If someone wants to follow you, reach out to you, where can they find you at? Yeah, so docontherun.com. So uh, D-O-C-O-N-T-H-E-R-U-N.com. Everything's there. So, you know, the Doc on the Run podcast is there um, under the Doc on the Run podcast tab where I talk about running injuries. Um, and, you know, and I have all those things about, like I have lists of questions to ask doctors, you know, all the things that can help you, like resources that help you actually navigate that system like we've been talking about. Um, everything's there. There's a contact form there. Uh, if somebody wants to talk to me directly, they can book a call through there. Um, but that's really it. Just docontherun.com is is the probably the best place. I'm also at you know at, at docontherun on Instagram, um, and uh, also on other social media channels as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. And that concludes this week's episode of Highly Functional. If you enjoyed it and found the information helpful. I invite you to head over to Facebook and join my group, Obstacle Course Racing Athlete Health and Performance, where you can both join your OCR tribe, as well as find very helpful, useful information on how to become a more dominant racer, a more resilient racer, and truly race at your peak performance. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional. <laughs>